Good, I'd like to request your attention for some background to our practice, so this is not a guided meditation. Um, this is the very early part of our uh, meditative instructions, and in line with most Buddhist meditation teaching, the uh, part of the body is crucial. Our bodies are quite dear to us in many ways, but we are somewhat ambivalent in our relationship to bodies. We generally like them when they like it, and we don't like it when they don't like it. And there is usually great ease at paying attention to when the body experiences pleasure or delight. And uh, inevitably there is uh, attention there when the body is in pain or is uh, in discomfort. So the painful and the pleasant end of the spectrum usually are not a problem when it comes to attention. Yeah? So we attend willy-nilly in one case and uh, easefully in the other case to bodily dimension of our experience. But uh, the closer we look, the more it becomes obvious that there is a substantial chunk in the middle when the body experiences neither great pleasure nor uh, great discomfort, uh, where we actually find it not so easy to attend to the body. To our attention gravitates much more easily to cognitive phenomena or to other phenomena. So um, an even closer look may reveal that we have active, active resistance against, against the peace in the middle. So many, many meditators find out that actually it's not so easy to attend to embodied experience when that experience is neither overtly pleasant nor overtly painful. Um, so Buddhist meditation traditions have been quite clear that it is necessary to create a reliably attuned attentional relationship to the body as a basis for a deeper stillness and b for um, being able to work. In fact, this is a prerequisite before we can work with more challenging mind states, emotions, um, discursive material, uh, before we can handle patterns that uh, are active in our lives, we need to be able to reliably return to bodily sensations as an anchor for our attention. Yeah. That sounds fairly easy. I believe, uh, and it's a lot less easy to actually reliably do that because it somehow goes counter to our habitual, generally involuntary types of attention because this type of attention usually goes to thinking. It goes to discursive processes. We enjoy something, very soon we think about it. We hate something, yeah, there's a little bit of discomfort in the body, there's an uncomfortable mood, and then we think about it. We get bored with something, we think about something that might be less boring. Yeah? We keep going to the discursive part in our experience to find easy, easy solace. Yeah. When uh, we are bored with what's happening in the present, we uh, go to the discursive part of the mind when we are uh, threatened by overwhelm, when we hope to attenuate 
the intensity of the felt experience, either emotionally felt or bodily felt. We, we mentalize. Yeah. This is a strategy to feel less. And as a net result, we do a lot of thinking. And then we have an education system that favors discursive processes over, uh, say, emotional intelligence. So we end up thinking, thinking, thinking. You know, if we, if we feel well, we think a lot. If we don't feel well, we think a lot. Uh, if we feel well, we think a lot, we call it creativity. If we don't feel well, we think a lot, we call it depression. You know, it, it seems that if any sober assessment of our attentional patterns uh, is made, we seem to spend a disproportionate amount of our attention on cognitive processes, meaning thinking, associating, comparing, commenting, conceptualizing, this kind of thing. This is useful. Uh, I make use of this function in your mind and of the function in my mind to communicate what I'm communicating now. I, I have not found any more effective ways to do so. Uh, we're seeing the piglets at Cartless and Stephen yesterday. And if I had found that grunting is a more effective way of communicating to you the, the nature of mind functions, I would happily go grunting, but I'm pretty convinced we're doing better this way. Yeah. So, the primacy of body and learning to establish an attuned, kindly, relational, attentional uh, meeting, encounter with bodily phenomena is the basis on which all samadhi and all insight rests in early Buddhist psychology. psychology yeah? So that means we'll have to do that. In the Satipatthana teachings, the body, the, the body segment, the first of the four segments, actually has six headings and is the largest of the Satipatthana headings. It's the largest chapter, uh, the one on body. In fact, the body has a special mindfulness sutta, just the one after the Satipatthana. Um, no, that's not true. The one after the uh, Anapanasati sutta. We have actually a special sutta dedicated to the mindfulness of the body. So, what are these six headings? Let's be clear. The first one is posture. The Pali for this is iriyapatan. That means basically how this body sits and how it orients in space. That means for us uh, alignment, it means for us balance, it means for us centering, it means for us uh, erecting a spine and relaxing and letting the body know what other parts of the body does. You know, in Western, uh, Western understanding, this is called proprioception, that one part of you knows where other parts of the body are. I mean, in other words, you can close your eyes and still find your nose with your, with your index finger. That you do with the help of proprioception. There is much to be said in favor of an exercise that learns to bring attention away from discursive processes to actually feel the body. Now, it so happens that much of mindfulness and much of meditation instruction is given with, um, with a lot of visual metaphors. So we observe, we witness, we bring into perspective. We use the visual metaphor to establish a relationship to our experience. If you think of mindfulness as a relationship, it's basically an activity of relating. So, preferably an intelligent form of relating to your own experience. That's how I'd like to think of meditation. And 
not just receiving it, but actually beginning to get involved in that relationship. And as in every relationship, not only one attitude is always right. You know, there is a, a moment where you're uh, really honest and absolutely straight, and there is a moment when you're very cautious, and then there is a moment when you're cheeky. Uh, yeah. So, as in all relationships, as in all life relationships, meditation doesn't always request the same thing as a relationship from us. So we have to relate differently. For most of us, attuned to thinking type of experience, it means our attention is used to things that are fast, that are sharp, that are chiseled, that are flitting, that are saying exactly what they mean, and that are associating like mad, yeah? namely thoughts. So when you have an, a mind that is attending to thoughts, you're going to be prepared for things that move like thoughts. If you try to be mindful of the body, you obviously have to look in a different corner or relate to a different part of yourself. But the, the raw material you find is not sharp. It's generally not fast. It doesn't associate like mad. It doesn't say what it means. Yeah? It behaves very different to thoughts. So you need to change the gauge or the mesh of your attention. Because you meet things like a warm, fuzzy feeling going from one part of your ribcage to another part of your stomach. It doesn't have a clear meaning. You don't know what, it's, what it means. You know, it noodles from one part of your body to another and it doesn't really have a clearly attributable meaning. And yet it's there. You can feel it. But if you expect hard, sharp, fast, clear things, then you will not even find it. You will just look in the right corner, but basically we think nothing's happening there. So we need to somehow not just shift the angle in, in how we relate to our experience, we also need to shift the mesh or the gauge of our attention. So I'd, I'd encourage you to consciously take note of differing tones of sensations in the body. The body is, um, is really intelligent. You know, it's a lot more intelligent than your prefrontal cortical intelligence. You know, it isn't just 170 years of hominid development. It's, it's four billion years of cellular development on that planet. So these bodies, they're quite smart. If we learn to listen to them, they tell us a lot. If we don't listen, we just have to operate on those uh, you know, educational intelligence and the front part of our brains. And that's not always the best. So bodies, if they are actually allowed to speak and if they are listened to in the ways they speak, they are quite revealing. They tell us stories about our lives. They tell us, uh, they give us an incredible resource. They're not running away. They're always taking place in the present moment. That's the big thing about body. You never get uh, yesterday's pains. You, know? you never get tomorrow's migraine. You, know? you never get uh, a hunger that is 30 years old. You know, this is not the case with the mind. You, know, you get all kinds of things that may be 30 years old in your memory, but the body, when you pay attention to the body, when you relate to the body as it feels now, then it will always take you into the present moment. You always get present moment body. So one of the magic ways mindfulness of the body works is by taking you simply by attending to apparently not very, not very dramatic experiences like 
how it, how the weight in your body feels or how you feel the distribution of that weight or the warmth or the cold or the tone or the naughtiness or the relaxedness of certain parts of that body. Whenever you do that, you immediately end up in the present moment. That's already very good news. As you will find out, this is not so easy to stay in the present moment. That's what meditation teachers keep telling you and it sounds very easy and plausible. But actually, when you look what your mind does, you realize, um, well, when you're young, so anecdotal evidence says uh, you spend more time thinking about the future and as you get older, you gradually begin to uh, reminisce more and think more about what has already happened. That present moment is the eye of the needle to go back through. It's not a small speck. It's not a now dot, okay? It's a present moment. Think of it, it's a stretch rather than a point. You know? There is no such thing as a now, to be honest with you. It's a kind of, it's a, it's a myth. You know? Now is a stretch. Now is something that has duration. Now is something that has conditions that make it up. So. Think of it, the present moment, as a, as a bridge between, you know, the mountain range of the past and the mountain range of the future, and there's a bridge. So that bridge, when you're very mindful, that bridge is a lot longer. When you're not very mindful, the bridge is a lot shorter. Yeah. But it's definitely more than a speck. So we're trying to move with our attention more into that present moment, and one safe way in there is finding the body. So let's start very hands-on with the cushion. You know, these things here are blessings of the Japanese tradition. They're called zafus, and they bite, basically they like to be pummeled. Yeah? You see they get loft. If you pummel them, they quickly get loft. If they contain kapok, as most of them in here do, they kind of go up. And they serve, uh, they, they have a great longevity if occasionally receiving an affectionate pummeling. Yeah, so make use of this. Think of these uh, cushions, not so much as cushions, but actually think of them as wedges. Yeah, so if you... Thank you, my toe got stuck there. <laughs> so think of them as wedges. You sit on the edge of one of them. Yeah, don't try to sit on top of them, as would make sense, but actually their function is much more uh, improved when you just sit on the edge. And then you allow them to raise your pelvis a bit off above ground so that the stretch on your muscles here is minimized. When that stretch is minimized, your knees hurt less. Your knees hurt because something pulls. Yeah. So when you raise your pelvis, then the stretch is minimized and the knees will be grateful for this. What also is possible, if you sit upright on one of these, then you actually have to do less muscular work in the lower part of your spine. Obviously, you can sit with a straight back like this, but it takes more effort. Yeah? So you save yourself that effort by raising your pelvis a little bit, and then you're trying to fill out. I'd like to invite you to just put the small, the back of your hand into the small of your back. So. While obviously it is helpful if you have a sizable belly like me, then uh, you know be grateful. And if you don't, it's, you know it's still doable without. Yeah, so <laughs> that you don't have any pretexts not being able to do this. Just fill the small of your back here. Just notice how a little tilt of your pelvis actually has a dramatic effect on your lumbar vertebrae. 
So the idea is that this part here raises quite vertically. You know, we have a natu natural curve, which is great for walking and, and, and running and so forth, but for sitting here, the idea is that you don't hollow the small of your back. And if you don't hollow the small of your back, in other words, if that part here is vertical, you feel very clearly how the weight of your torso goes straight in your sit bones. That's where we begin our postural work. You begin always at the bottom. The next area of attention, key area, would be up here. So you make sure that the upper part of your chest is open. Yeah. Chris does that very well when I look at him. It's just kind of open here. Come up, open, at the expense of feeling slightly artificial or exaggerated, or sometimes even it may feel conceited to kind of come into the space. So don't hesitate to allow such feelings to arise, but don't let that stop you to actually raise your chest and make sure that this part here opens, as if you come into the space with your... Ah, yeah. Imagine something gently touches you beneath, be between your shoulder blades and goes down and something on your sternum touches you and gently comes up. So you're kind of a, rot a gentle rotation. Tips of your shoulder blades go down and your sternum comes up a little bit. And now you do this without hollowing the small of your back. Okay. Let me have a look. I'm glad if you're not just looking at me, but if you're actually doing this. It's a lot more effective. Now the next stage is your head. You're looking to uh, lengthen the neck. So imagine you're being kind of slightly pulled up from, uh, in my case, imaginary curl. Uh, and you have an almost elongated spine. Yeah? So you have your, your small of the back is reasonably vertical, your chest is open, and now you're elongating your neck. That feels again a little bit constrained and artificial, but it helps us to optimize our posture. And now you're looking where your gaze goes. Ideally, your gaze goes ahead. So that means your the way you you adjust the, the posture of the head is by by movements of your chin. Yeah, exaggerate for a moment. Just pull in. Go into an over Zen mode, yeah. So it's kind of pulling. It's a beautifully long part of the neck, the back of the neck, but it's a bit tight at the front. Then you do the opposite. Often, what we do begins to feel normal. So if we actually want to reassess whether what we do is really optimal, we need to be prepared to go out of the normal that which feels normal. So if you move that, you will find probably two spots. One of them is the spot of, of your normal, and the other may be the spot where it's actually optimal, you know, where you feel your head has the least amount of weight. That would be a telltale sign, the least amount of weight. So you also look to have a similar tone in the front part, you know, your larynx area, which has many, many muscles, and the back part of your head. Deep sigh. Now try to smile. 
try to smile into your body and say, okay, body, you're beautifully optimized and now you're relaxing into this. Yeah? So, we are creating ease. You will, you may not be aware of this, but we have actually begun with the practice of samatha. All samatha practice begins with the creation of ease in the body. That doesn't mean everything has to be optimal or perfect, but it means that I am willing to create ease where there may be discomfort. I create a little niche where I can be easeful with myself in the body as it is now. That is the beginning of samatha practice. So great, close your eyes for a moment and savor that, savor equilibrium, savor that you're really upright, savor the balance, savor the stability, Save it how good it feels to just surrender one's weight. To feel the strength of the body to sit upright. You know, like Chris said last night, this kind of arriving in safety. We're now creating an inner mountain, you know, creating the safety of our inner mountain. Stability the audacity of rising up, the balance, the strength of this posture. Now let us begin to inhabit some areas. Rather than focusing on any one part, let's just notice where does the weight go. Which parts of this body actually carry, do the carrying? Notice little differences. It is very likely that some of our felt senses are asymmetrical. If you notice a, a disparity in the weightedness of your left and your right sit bone, see whether you can adjust that a little so that this is fairly distributed what has to be carried. And then take stock just how wide this body is the distance from one knee to another knee, the length of a thigh that touches, maybe in parts or maybe in, as a whole, your mat or your chair. By the way, all I have said for sitting on the floor does apply to sitting on a chair. If you come off the backrest and use the front part of the chair, Make sure you have some weight on your feet and you can control the movement of your pelvis and use my indications of how to make the back nice and vertical, build up the posture from the hips, exactly as I described for sitting on the floor. Now your attention widens. You notice that you can pay attention. Generally, it's easiest to go to the loudest of bodily sensations, pressure. When we speak of body sensation, we mean things like touch. We mean the tactile field, which involves the skin. So anything the skin feels, heat or coolness, 
how dry or how sticky our skin may be. We feel the contact with texture, say the cloth underneath my palms, maybe parts of my shirt touching the body, often the collar, sometimes the sleeves, and obviously the bit that where my breathing movement is felt. But we also feel in the body inside where skin is not involved. We feel differing degrees of saturation, different degrees of density, parts that seem very permeable, very light, and parts that seem very solid, firm, compact. So the inside of my elbow and my sacrum don't feel the same way. They have a different degree of solidity. One dimension of body is extension. Rupa, the first category of that which touches the sense organs is extension. It takes space. How much space do I take right now? I can feel the contact, the surface, I can feel the uprightness, the height of this body, and I can feel the third dimension, that it takes space. Now some of that space actually is moving. The volume of this body changes with every in-breath, with every out-breath. Somehow this body becomes alive, it's not just surface, pressure, touch. It is actually a space that becomes a little bit bigger and then a little bit smaller in the rhythm of my breathing. So some of the outside space becomes inside space. So take a moment to savor this, to just feel that you also can pay attention to that which is not dominant. I have the choice to disregard the most dominant of sensations and pay attention to something more quiet, more subtle, more diffuse maybe. So I have the freedom to make choices to feel things that are not the loudest of my somatic experiences. Like when you're in a restaurant with a friend and you want to listen to your friend, but, and then there's a few loud guys coming in and having a party, and you make a choice to listen to your friend rather than to the loud guys. In the same way, you can make a choice to listen to more subtle, more diffuse bodily experiences. in the face of maybe other ones which may be more prominent. So try that out for a moment. Feeling the whole space as you sit here, as the body widens in, with an in-breath, 
softly relaxes with an out-breath. Is there something you can enjoy right now in this? Even mildly enjoy. Sense of balance maybe, an equipoise. Maybe it begins to feel as if the breathing actually does do the posture. It's the breathing that strengthens your uprightness. So, as if with every in-breath you pump that posture a little. The inflatable meditator. See whether you can enjoy some of this. And when you notice that there is tension or unnecessary effort, you just smile at yourself and release gently. Let the cushion, the chair do the carrying. And you as the practitioner, you focus on alignment. You focus on bringing this body in alignment with the forces of gravity. Widening your field of attention, feeling the nooks and crannies of your body as you savor your attention, gently meandering through the various parts, welcoming body sensations in your legs, in your fingertips, in your torso, your hips and abdomen, your shoulders, your face, just welcoming. Like children who discover an ancient house with many doors, go in and curiously open doors, slightly awed, grateful for a discovery. willing to meet anew. <coughs> Let's do that for a moment. <coughs> if your mind strays off and goes into commenting, thinking, as is to be expected, whenever you notice this, gently take it by the hand and bring it back into the present moment body experience. The discovery of my embodied inner world. The felt inhabited inner world.
So we, can you hear me? Yes. We have a, We have a period of walking now, and as you know, we are alternating between these phases of sitting meditation and walking meditation in our practice. And everything that I'm saying with regard to the walking meditation, of course, also applies to those of you who may have issues around mobility, then it just applies to whatever form of, you know, moving. Um, back and forth. Now this practicing walking meditation is really just as equally important in this whole practice as the sitting meditation. It's really just another way of practicing awareness throughout the day, giving ourselves a break from the sitting, finding a little bit of um, bodily relief also, um, walking meditation can um, balance the mind when we find ourselves too busy then the walking meditation can be so helpful to calm down a little bit when we are feeling very tired or sluggish um, it can bring a bit more energy into the system so it's really just as important even if sometimes there might may be this impression that only sitting meditation is the real thing to do. So it's actually just a practice of developing a more steady awareness, no matter what we are doing throughout the day. And last week in an interview, a yogi um, told me a short, uh, told me three main words that she once heard from her music teacher about what this practice is about. And I just found it so, so brilliant because it summarizes really nicely what we are trying to practice here. She said these three words were intention, attention, and no tension. So intention means that we know what we are doing, that we have a clear intention to be present, to reconnect again and again, to be aware of whatever is happening. And intention needs practice. Intention needs to be um, brought to the mind again and again. We need to remind ourselves again and again of what is my intention. Because especially in the walking meditation, it's so easy to forget about the intention. Then suddenly something else arises. We see, we walk past the tea station and suddenly our intention to walk, to walk uh, towards a walking place has been forgotten. So it is a practice of remembering intention, to have a clear intention at first and then to recommit to this intention again and again. To remember the intention to be present again and again to remember the intention to be present with a interested and kind attention. So intention is something we want to practice 
um, learning not to be dragged away by all kinds of impulses all the time, but to live from a different place that is based on a conscious choice rather than just being you know, at the mercy of whatever is coming to the mind. So intention, then uh, attention, um, bringing this kind of awareness to whatever we are doing, cultivating the attention to uh, especially the body sensations. So today we would like to encourage you, as Akinchano has said, to really stay with the body. So see if you can stay very close to bodily sensations, really um, drop into the felt experience of your body. And this means in the walking meditation, mainly connecting with the sensations in your feet, feeling the contact, uh, feeling the pressure, feeling the lifting of the foot, the moving of the foot, the placing of the foot, the shifting of the weight, just being sensitive to this felt bodily experience. And, you know, this doesn't mean that we have to now totally focus just on our feet. There will be at the same time an awareness. And it's actually good to have a spacious awareness at the same time so we don't have to exclude visual experiences or sounds or other things. We can still be aware in a very spacious and relaxed way of what is going on and still at the same time make a choice of where we pay our main attention. So I would like to encourage you to practice this kind of relaxed, spacious awareness and at the same time within this spaciousness having a clear idea of where your attention is. So being close to the body, feeling the feet, feeling the legs, feeling this motion through space. Um, maybe it's a good thing at the beginning of your walking space to take a moment, you know, to stand, to really fully take in the spaciousness, have a sense of the totality of your experience, the sounds, the sights, the whole felt sense of the body, and then intentionally um, being a bit more interested in what you are feeling in your feet. And if you get to the end of your walking path, we are moving just back and forth, maybe, you know, 10 steps or 20 steps, it doesn't really matter if you get to the end of your walking path. Also, being aware of coming to the end of the walking path, being aware of standing, then turning around, being aware of this moving, this turning around, and then again, intentionally beginning to walk and just to feel your feet on the ground. And the last thing I would like to mention is uh, no tension bit, uh, because when we try to feel our feet, very often it happens that we become too contracted because we want to do it right. And then we tense up and we, oh, it's, it feels like, you know, we try to be aware from up here, we try to feel our feet almost. Sometimes I see people looking at their feet as if they have to watch their feet moving. 
But actually what we want to do is to feel the feet from within. And this is another way of being aware. Like right now, if you bring your awareness to your feet, can you just feel them without looking at them from here? Just, you know, from within, we try to feel the feet. And this is a very relaxed way of being aware. We just listen to, how do I experience my feet right now? So, um, putting an emphasis, as Akinchano has also mentioned, on this sense of ease, of well-being, of enjoying the practice, and um, seeing to it that we don't contract too much, so that we keep the spaciousness and yet uh, reconnect to the intention of being with our feet on the ground. Um, yes, yeah, so I think you have one uh, or two uh, announcements. And then later, well, you can say that. Good. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.